This is Leah Allen from Lake Palestine in Chandler, Texas. You are listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. You know there is a little bit more to making a podcast than just talking into a mic and hitting publish. You need more than that. And I'm talking about a reliable hosting service so your time can be spent working on your show. You also want accurate download numbers, you want to see the audience that you're reaching, and you're going to want a web page that is simple and easy to work with. That's why I choose Blueberry. With its simple media hosting and fully integrated WordPress website, it can't get any easier. So if you host a show or if you're thinking about starting one, visit www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to give Blueberry a try for a month for free. Blueberry's support team will be right there every step of the way to help you migrate over so you won't lose any of your subscribers in the process. And if you're brand new to this, they can get your new show up and running. And with a month for free to try it out using promo code DREAM, what have you got to lose? There are a number of ways that you can support California Dreaming. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can spread the word about the show. You can recommend us in podcasts and true crime fan groups. And you can leave the show a rating and a review on iTunes or whichever platform you listen to the show on. And if you would like to go a little above and beyond, you can also support the show on our Patreon. For as little as $1 a month, you can gain access to one exclusive episode per month. And there are currently more than two dozen episodes that you can binge. So it is a pretty good deal for just a dollar. And this week, I did release a second Patreon bonus for those who support the show at the $5 and up tiers, which we cover the case of the 2008 Covina Christmas Eve Massacre. So if you are at the $5 and above tier, that episode is available now for you. This week, I would like to thank Sherry R., Daniel T., Stephanie D., Vivian G., M. Nunez, K. Myers, Harriet N., and Elid M. for joining Patreon. And I would also like to thank Lisa B. for raising her Patreon to the next level. And if you are not interested in a monthly donation, you can help with a one-time donation to the show through our PayPal using our email, californiapod at gmail.com. Every little bit helps and is very much appreciated. So thank you. You all listening remember the story that broke our collective hearts 17 years ago this Christmas Eve. When the world learned that a very pregnant Lacey Rocha disappeared. And no, this is not going to be an anniversary rehash of her and baby Connor's tragic murders. You know, I wouldn't do that to you. Though, admittedly, I do think about Lacey and Connor around this time of year. Which is what kind of led me into the story that I'm going to share with you today. Because we are true crime fans, I know we know Lacey's case like the back of our hand. Having said that, it is likely many of us know the eerily similar case of Evelyn Hernandez. 
Not to be confused with the Evelyn Hernandez out of El Salvador, who was charged with murder after she gave birth. And I'm sorry, this is really hard for me to say, but I guess I should warn you to skip ahead 30 seconds now to avoid these really graphic details. But Evelyn Hernandez gave birth to her baby in a toilet and the baby subsequently died. And she claimed that she didn't know that she was pregnant and that she passed out during childbirth. She was charged with murder, but acquitted. And until this happened, the Evelyn Hernandez that I am speaking about today would have been at the top of your Google results. But that isn't the case anymore. Incidentally, both Evelyns are natives of El Salvador. But to search the Evelyn that I'm speaking about includes San Francisco in your search bar. There is an article from Alta Online that does pop up in the top results that's entitled A Tale of Two Killings from March of this year, written by Beth Spotswood, which compares Evelyn's and Lacey's cases. You see, seven months prior to the disappearance of Lacey in May of 2002, Evelyn Hernandez, her five-year-old son Alex, and her unborn baby vanished in San Francisco just about 90 miles or 144 kilometers from where Lacey and her unborn baby went missing from in Modesto, California. However, when Evelyn and her son went missing, she was barely a blip on the media's radar. Fast forward seven months when Lacey met an eerily parallel fate. Her story quickly spread from Northern California across the country across the oceans, and around the world. Why did we not experience the same frenzied media coverage when Evelyn went missing, as we did when Lacey went missing? And remember, Evelyn's five-year-old disappeared too. And we usually take the disappearances of young children quite seriously, don't we? We seem to take the disappearances of pregnant women seriously, too. While it is not uncommon for there to be a divide between what the media deems newsworthy, whether it be race or socioeconomic status, the media is known to gravitate towards certain cases while all but ignoring others, even though the stories are similar. They look for the ones that grab the public's attention. And the difference between Evelyn and Lacey, as this article points out, is this. Lacey was a vivacious, suburban wife and soon-to-be mom. She had this stunning smile, and in pictures, she and her killer stood out to us as a happy, fulfilled, picture-perfect couple. But Evelyn, she was an immigrant. She was in the United States legally, but an immigrant nonetheless. She was a single mom, and there is only one picture of her that is circulated online. And she too had a beaming smile as she held her son in her arms with a smile of his own to match. Both of them, both Evelyn and Lacey, ended up murdered. Both of their bodies were dumped into the San Francisco Bay 
and both of them eventually washed ashore. Yet despite both women having met with a similar demise, the media followed Lacey's case for days and months and years after she went missing. We followed the case until we saw her killer make his way onto California's death row. And even then, the media still has not let this case or this killer fade out of the public consciousness. In 2017, Lacey's killer finally spoke publicly for the first time since his conviction for a documentary about the case that was released that same year. And the public fascination proved to have endured the decade and a half that had passed since Lacey's murder. Yet Evelyn's killer has never been brought to justice. Her murder case languishes someplace buried in the unsolved case files of the San Francisco Police Department. And her son, who has never been found, would be 23 years old today if he were alive someplace out in the world. We just don't know because for whatever reason, Evelyn and Alex slip through the cracks. A component of Lacey's killer's defense even included the possibility that there was a link to Evelyn's murder because of the stark similarities. It is likely one of the reasons why any of us knew of Evelyn and Alex in the first place, because she got a mention in the footnotes of Lacey's case. Evelyn Hernandez moved to the United States, as I mentioned earlier, from El Salvador. She was only 14 years old when she arrived in San Francisco. She enrolled at McAteer High School, but by the time she was 17, she found herself pregnant with her son, Alex. Evelyn gave birth in 1997, and she was known to have worked a couple of part-time jobs, one at San Francisco's Clift Royal Sonesta Hotel, and she had another job at Costco. She and her son eventually moved into the Crocker Amazon neighborhood of San Francisco, and she had become involved in a relationship with a man named Herman Aguilera. At the time, Evelyn was 24 and he was 36. It's been reported that he was an airplane mechanic, but there was also some reports that he worked as a chauffeur for a local limousine business. And Herman Aguilera was also very married. And then sometime towards the beginning of May of 2002, Evelyn and Alex vanished. The last time her family reported having spoken to Evelyn was the same day she was last seen at Alex's elementary school, which was May 1st. Evelyn's due date was six days later, on the 7th. It was her married boyfriend who had reported her and Alex missing to the San Francisco Police Department. Evelyn's family and those close to her all reported that she was thrilled about having a second child. She knew she was having a boy and his name was going to be Fernando. But it was also reported to law enforcement that Herman Aguilera was very, very unhappy about this pregnancy. And he had made that quite clear to Evelyn. He did not want this. 
So in order to try and figure out why he was so down on the idea, Evelyn decided to call up his mom to see if she could shine some light on the reasons why he was so unhappy about having this baby. And it was then his mom broke the news to Evelyn. He's married. And of course, that is a huge reason to not be happy about your mistress being pregnant with your baby. You're going to soon have some explaining to do to your wife. And well, apparently his wife had some knowledge of Evelyn, but she reported to have had no idea that she was nine months pregnant with his son. So Evelyn's been reported missing, right? The San Francisco Police Department with a very, very pregnant missing mom and a missing five-year-old, they're going to take this case quite seriously and make it their priority, right? I mean, remember Lacey? Remember the urgency and desperation for finding her peaked all over again when Connor's due date approached? The family was keeping a close watch on any and every hospital that might have admitted a woman ready to give birth or even a mom that came in with a newborn baby. Her family was still holding out hope a month and a half later, thinking that Lacey and Connor were going to be in desperate need of medical attention because he was due to be born sometime during the second week of February of 2003. Of course, we know now that that never happened. So, with the baby due in just days from the day Evelyn was last seen, along with the missing child, the San Francisco Police Department are on high alert, aren't they? They're keeping their eye on all the hospitals, and they're investigating the obvious prime suspect, the married father of the unborn baby, right? Well, not quite. The San Francisco Police Department didn't exactly take Evelyn's disappearance seriously. Their initial thought was that Evelyn left San Francisco, likely heading back to El Salvador because that's where her mom was and much of her family. Because her boyfriend, the father of the child, was married and he made it clear that he didn't want the baby So she packed up her pregnant self and her son and left. Now, if you're like me, then your first thought is that this is just ridiculous. I mean, seriously, did the police really think that six days away from her due date that she'd hop on a plane and fly to El Salvador? Evelyn been pregnant for nine months by this time here in California. She's been seeing her doctor there in San Francisco for the entire pregnancy. She's set and ready to give birth any day now. I seriously doubt she's going anywhere in that condition, especially with the five-year-old in tow. And then it is clear that the father of the baby, who is married, did not want to see this pregnancy through. And he waited and waited and hoped and thought and planned and... It was coming down to the wire, and the desperation was setting in. The baby was coming, and he didn't want him. If you all didn't know any better, you'd think I was describing Lacey's killer right now, right? When Lacey was reported missing, 
Did investigators think that she split town too? We know that Lacey confided in her mom that her killer was distant and detached when it came to the baby. He reportedly didn't even want to feel her belly when the baby was kicking. So upon learning of his apparent disinterest in the baby, did lead investigators surmise that Lacey up and split town or went into hiding over it? No, they didn't. There was an immediate sense of urgency to find Lacey, especially because she was pregnant and needed to be found quickly before she and Connor encountered any kind of medical complications or emergencies. But this was not the case for Evelyn. To them, she must have left the country. Never mind the fact that a quick check of the airport would have easily cleared that up, as there would have been a record of her leaving if she did, in fact, go to El Salvador. And there was no indication that she boarded a plane or ever left the country. A few days after Evelyn went missing, her wallet, which contained cash and an uncashed disability check paid to the order of Evelyn Hernandez, was found someplace in South San Francisco. And where it was found just happened to be a couple of blocks away from Herman Aguilera's place of employment. It was at that point police began to think that perhaps Evelyn had met with foul play. Really? You think? I mean, the whole wallet with the money and an uncashed check pretty much must have blown their theory out of the water that she had left town. Finally, the police department began treating Evelyn's case as a missing person. So what about this married boyfriend guy? Apparently, his wife was the one that provided him with his alibi, telling authorities that he was with her the day Evelyn reportedly went missing. But according to the article on Alta Online, the specifics of Aguilera's whereabouts remain sketchy. While when you look at Lacey's case, the most inconsequential details surrounding the time that she went missing all had been tracked down, confirmed, checked, and double-checked pretty much minute for minute. And again, nobody ever even entertained the thought that Lacey may have left town. And then there is also the sad reality that there was really no one close to Evelyn living in the San Francisco area that was able to advocate for her in the media the way that Lacey's family was able to do so. They were able to go before the media and make their pleas for Lacey's safe return. They were able to set up information tip lines and hold public vigils, and they stayed present in the media, and the story quickly made national and international news. Evelyn just didn't have that. And also, according to the article in Alta Online, Evelyn's own hometown newspaper, the San Francisco Chronicle, ran 32 articles about Lacey from December of 2002 through April of 2003, four of which found their way onto the Chronicle's front page. And it really wasn't even Lacey's hometown. As you know, she went missing from Modesto, California though she did wash up in the San Francisco Bay. 
The Chronicle ran four stories on Evelyn, and none of them made front-page news. And then, two months after Evelyn went missing, portions of her decomposed body, her legs and torso, still wearing maternity clothing, washed ashore also in the San Francisco Bay. Her baby, her unborn baby, was never found, and neither was her five-year-old. It's a story that seems like it should have made national headlines. Herman Aguilera should have been hounded by the media, like Lacey's killer, like Shanann Watts's killer. I would have loved to have seen Aguilera's demeanor and his body language on camera when asked about his pregnant mistress. But it would not be that way. Four months after Evelyn went missing, Aguilera lawyered up and stopped cooperating with the investigation. Podcasts, documentaries, books, and the like have still been making the rounds when it comes to Lacey's case. And the country and the world still hang on to some interest in her story, even after all these years. But the case of Evelyn and Alex Hernandez continues to collect dust someplace in the San Francisco Police Department's cold case files. There are conflicting reports as to what are the first and second leading causes of death of pregnant women. One study reports that car accidents are the leading cause, while another study reports that homicide is the leading cause. Whichever is the case, the fact is being pregnant brings about an alarming risk for the expectant mom to become a victim of domestic violence, as she is in one of the most vulnerable places in her life. She's physically vulnerable, emotionally, and along with all the other stress factors that go along with expecting a new baby. So when that pregnancy is unwanted by the father, Anger and resentment may start to set in, leading him to take drastic steps to ensure that this pregnancy is not carried to full term. Half the women that are murdered in the United States are killed by an intimate partner, and about 15% of those are pregnant. So the urgency for pregnant women to be counseled and talked to about domestic violence by advocates is vital not just during the pregnancy, but also during the postnatal appointments. And the same should be said for men who are feeling the anxiety and pressure that comes with expecting a baby. Expectant fathers also need a place to reach out for help if it's becoming overwhelming, and they have to before it's too late. Dreamers, I have a story for you today about a young woman from right here in Southern California. She met a guy. They had a fling. They ended up pregnant. And he ended up very unhappy about it. Very unhappy. And it wasn't the first time that he found himself in this predicament. We know the lengths that some men will go to when they are saddled with an unwanted pregnancy. And we are going to meet one of those men who did what he could to try and make sure this problem of his would go away. 
in this 123rd episode of California Dreaming, The Tale of the Unborn Victim. The backdrop of our story today is a city located in what is known as the South Bay area of Southern California, the city of Hawthorne, a suburb of Los Angeles. Its nickname, the City of Good Neighbors. It's a city named after Salem, Massachusetts native, the author of The Scarlet Letter and The House of Seven Gables, Nathaniel Hawthorne. Why him? because founder B.L. Harding's daughter shared the same birthday as Hawthorne, which happened to be our Independence Day, July 4th. So thus, the town was named. The most notable thing about the city of Hawthorne today is that it is where the headquarters of SpaceX, founded by Elon Musk, is located at the Hawthorne Airport. Also, Northrop Grumman was founded in Hawthorne also in 1939, whose buildings are currently being used to house SpaceX. Northrop has coincidentally come up in our last two episodes with the House of Horrors patriarch David Turpin and Covina Massacre perpetrator Bruce Pardo both having worked for the Defense Corporation in some capacity. And also my dad too, before he retired, worked for several years for Northrop as well. Tesla Motors Design Center is also located in the city of Hawthorne. And aside from that, the town is mostly comprised of working class families. And this is where sisters from oldest to youngest, Monica, Michelle, and Crystal were raised. Like so many in the community, the Taylor family was very close very tight-knit, and the matriarch, they referred to her as Momo, she is the one who instilled these values in her girls. As I mentioned, Monica and Michelle came along first, and then six years later, Crystal was born, and she was very much the spoiled baby of the family, and she had her mom wrapped around her little finger. Crystal loved being at home. She loved being around her family. They described her as a dreamer with visions of romance and love in her life, like so many of the romantic movies that she enjoyed. She'd always had hoped for that fairy tale for herself, being swept off her feet when she least expected. But you know, life isn't always like a romance novel or a movie. But still, she found happiness in the life that she was living. And the greatest joy of Crystal's life came on the exact day that she herself turned 17. Crystal gave birth to a baby boy that she named Giovante. But even up until the day he was born, Crystal knew that her fairy tale was not going to have Giovante's dad written into it. She just knew in her heart that she would be raising this boy on her own. 
that her Prince Charming was still someplace out there in some yet-to-be-discovered corner of the world. Crystal had all the confidence in the world that she and Giovante would have a perfect life on their own because she was completely surrounded by her family, her sisters, her mother, her nieces. There would be no shortage of love for Giovante. Not in that family. Not for a second. The fact is that most of the girls in the Taylor family became moms at a young age. But they made sure and insisted that this would not derail anyone from achieving their dreams or reaching their goals in life. They had each other's back. And that meant, yes, Crystal was 17 years old, not out of high school yet, and the mother of a newborn baby boy. But she would be back in school. She would finish. She would make her way through life just fine, whether it be college or work. Whatever path she took, having a baby was not going to stand in the way of that because everyone was there to make sure her son would be well taken care of while Crystal finished growing up herself. In 2001, youngest sister Crystal and middle sister Michelle were living in the same apartment complex in separate apartments, raising their kids still in Hawthorne. Their mother, Momo, had also lived in that same apartment for a time. But as she was aging, she began to struggle with some health-related issues and she had to make the tough decision to move from Hawthorne to Texas. Momo had a sister who was a registered nurse that would be able to provide Momo with the care that she needed. And it wasn't too long after Momo left for Texas that the girls received a call from their aunt that their mother's health had suddenly began declining, and they needed to make their way to Texas as quickly as possible as she wasn't sure how much longer Momo was going to be able to hang on. Unfortunately, the girls received this news on one of the worst and most tragic days in the history of the United States. September 11th. They were not going to be able to get a flight to Texas. And there was no telling at that point following the terrorist attacks when they would be able to. So the girls hit the road and drove to Texas to visit their ailing mother. The girls, Crystal especially, stayed by Momo's side the entire time. Crystal refused to leave her mother's side. And her being there, along with everyone else, really seemed to help Momo along as she started improving and her health was stabilizing. Sometimes all it takes is a little bit of love. Well, the girls stayed with mom for about two weeks before making that long drive back to California. They got back to Hawthorne sometime during the night going into the early morning hours of Sunday, September 23rd. Two days later, Crystal Taylor would be dead. A 9 wall came early in the morning of Tuesday, September 25th, 2001 to report that a single gunshot had been heard. 
and a woman was discovered lying on the ground in the garage area of the apartment complex in Hawthorne. Police arrived at the apartment, including the lead detective on the case, Robbie Williams. He arrived to find first responders doing what they could to try and save Crystal's life, who had suffered one gunshot wound to the back of her head. So Detective Williams went ahead and secured the scene and spoke to as many witnesses as quickly as he possibly could. This crime had happened at the beginning of the work and school day, so there were plenty of people around who may have had some vital information about who may have done this. And there were several people who heard the gunshot. One witness was making breakfast at the time Crystal was attacked and had heard the gunshot, at which point he glanced out his window and saw a man fleeing on foot from the area. A girl, 11 years old, headed to school, standing out in front of the apartment complex, also heard this gunshot. And when she took a look around, she too saw a man running, and in his hand, he held something shiny. She looked on as this man hopped a nearby fence and continued running. Unfortunately, there was nobody who witnessed the actual shooting itself, nor was Crystal's apartment complex equipped with any type of surveillance system. So Detective Williams was meticulously making his way around the crime scene to see what, if anything, the scene would reveal to him. He very quickly was able to rule out a robbery being a motive here because Crystal's purse was right there next to her, on the ground and untouched. Crystal's clothing was still in place, so there was no apparent sexual assault or even an attempt at one. It was clear in speaking to witnesses that the time that had elapsed between the sound of the gunshot and seeing a man flee the scene was too short of a period of time for either a burglary or a sexual assault to have taken place. So, what's going on here? Detective Williams had his work cut out for him. In the meantime, the word was getting around to Crystal sisters and her family that something had happened to her, that she had been shot and she had been transported to the hospital and they needed to get there. The first to arrive was Monica, but she arrived only to be told the devastating news that there was nothing that they could do. Her sister Crystal had succumbed to her injuries. She was only 27 years old. And then one of them needed to break the news to Momo, who had just spent two weeks being cared for in the loving arms of her baby girl, who was just getting a little bit better because of it. Michelle was the one who made that call, and Momo could do nothing but let out a heart-wrenching scream. And in that moment, the sisters were certain that their mom's health would begin another steep decline. And this time, there wasn't going to be anything that they could do to stop it. They knew the loss of Crystal would undoubtedly hasten their mother's death. And the sisters also needed to break the news to their nephew, Giovante, Crystal's son. 
By this time, he was ten. They sat with him. They didn't tell him how, but they told him his mom died. They got the feeling based on Giovante's reaction that this was something he was going to keep bottled up inside him. His mom was gone, and his whole life was going to be different now. And he just became kind of quiet. His aunts described his way of coping with this was just to shut down his emotions. He really didn't want to talk about it much from that point forward. Meanwhile, Detective Williams was hard at work trying to figure out a motive here. Who in Crystal's life had a reason to want her dead? In looking at her life in general, Crystal had no ties or any type of affiliation with any kind of criminal activity. She did not live a high-risk lifestyle. So, Detective Williams next turned to those close to Crystal people in her inner circle, her family, her loved ones, and the people that she may have been romantically involved with. In talking to the 11-year-old who heard the gunshot and saw the man with the shiny object running and hopping a wall, said that just before the gunshot, she heard voices of a man and a woman arguing. So it had the detective wondering, could that argument have something to do with Crystal's murder? Was there a man that she may have been involved with that she was having troubles with? Well, Detective Williams found out that there were three men that were close to Crystal at the time of her death. There was a man named Dino, described as an on-again, off-again boyfriend. Crystal's family and friends knew all about Dino, and none of them really had anything negative to say about him. He was nice, he had a good job, and he didn't really have any serious problems with Crystal that anyone knew of. Next, Detective Williams looked into Kenneth Woods, Giovante's dad. Looking into him, it seemed as though Kenneth had not taken a very active role in Giovante's life. He just wasn't around a lot. There was a court order in place for him to pay child support to Crystal, and there had been some ongoing disputes over that, though that isn't unusual. Then, when Detective Williams next went over to Crystal's place of work and spoke to some of her co-workers, who described themselves as pretty close friends of Crystal's, they were clearly devastated and stunned when they received the news that Crystal had been so violently murdered. But they did have some tantalizing information to share with the detective. They told him that Crystal was about five months pregnant, and the father of the baby had made it clear that he did not want Crystal to keep this pregnancy. This was the first Detective Williams had heard that Crystal was pregnant. She was not far long enough for a responding medical personnel to be able to tell by looking at her that she was. Detective Williams, when he saw Crystal, he wasn't able to tell either. So yes, when the man who shot Crystal killed her, he also killed her unborn baby, a baby boy. Crystal's friends at work identified the father of the unborn baby as a man named Derek Smyer. 
Detective Williams' urgency to find Derek Smyre suddenly peaked, especially when he was told by Crystal's friends that not only did she tell them that Derek Smyre did not want this pregnancy, but he was also urging her to terminate it. And the day before she was murdered, while she was at work, Crystal had received a phone call that caused her to become very upset. Detective Williams went looking for this Derek Smyre to see what was going on with this guy. And in his investigation into Smyre, he found out that he and Crystal had only had a brief fling that carried on for about a month. They had a chance encounter at a local park called Anderson Park, and it was located near where both of them worked, and they both occasionally spent their lunch breaks there. That's how they met. When the detective showed up at Smyre's place of work, he happened to be out at lunch at the time. So he went back to Crystal's work and asked if a couple of them could come with him to Anderson Park to help him find Derek Smyre. When they arrived there, they were quickly able to identify his vehicle. It was a silver Mustang with a personalized plate that read, My Whip. Now, out of curiosity, I went to the Urban Dictionary to see what this slang was all about. I wasn't really quite sure of the origin. Apparently, whip dates back to the stagecoach days. The whip was used to control the horses that pulled the stagecoach, right? So eventually, the whip became an analogy of a steering wheel, since that's what's used to control a car. Then some years later... The Mercedes-Benz emblem was thought to sort of look like a steering wheel. So Mercedes-Benzes started being referred to as a whip, particularly in hip-hop music. Eventually, whip came to be used to describe any expensive car, not just a Mercedes. Hence, this Derek Smyer guy with his Mustang, you know, get it with the horses and all that, and expensive car, yeah, that's the vanity plate that he had. So, you're already kind of getting an idea of what this guy is like, right? If you're sensing a hint of arrogance here, you're probably not wrong. I'm feeling the same thing here. Before long, Crystal's friends from work identified Derek Smyre for Detective Williams, and soon, Smyre was brought down to the Hawthorne Police Station for questioning. And he willingly answered the detective's questions. He said that it had been more than two months since he'd last seen Crystal. And said that as quickly as they started up a casual sexual relationship, it ended just as quickly. And beyond that, he really had not much in the way of anything useful to provide for investigators. Detective Williams did ask Myers if he knew of any other boyfriends, if Crystal had mentioned anyone else to him. And he said that there was a guy that she said would sometimes show up at her apartment, that she wanted him to stop calling because he kept trying to get back with her. But then Smyre said he didn't know if that was true or not, that it might have been a ploy on Crystal's part to try and make him jealous. Then there was a moment in an interview that really solidified for me that this guy was very self-involved. The detective asked him about Crystal's pregnancy. He asked Meyer, 
you're the father of her child, or she thinks you are. There was this pause, and then Derek said, well, anyway, and then just started laughing like a pretty big laugh, like this was some sort of joke. And this whole exchange really bothered me a lot. The detective said that Spire acknowledged the pregnancy, but he did not say that the baby was his or that Crystal had told him that the baby was his. And based on the description that he was given by witnesses who saw the man running away from the scene of the shooting, Derek Spire generally fit the description. But beyond that, there really wasn't much going on in Derek Spire's background that would indicate that he would have had anything to do with a violent murder such as this. He had nothing to speak of in the way of a criminal background. He was a college graduate. He had a really good corporate job. He came from a good, solid family growing up. Tight-knit, both he and his sister were raised in a very loving and stable home. Nothing about him, especially as far as his family was concerned. And we are going to hear from Derek Smyer's sister a little bit later on. And she has lots of opinions to share. But none of it would ever lead them to believe that Derek Smyer would have had anything to do with Crystal's murder. Detective Williams was not quite convinced, though. Of course... Smyer's parents and his sister are obviously going to think the best of him, always. The investigation had led the detective to three potential suspects, Giovante's dad, the on-again, off-again boyfriend, and the month-long fling. The detective went down the line, speaking to each of them and one by one, as he told them that Crystal had been killed, it was going to be his chance to gauge their initial reactions. It doesn't always mean anything, but still, it is an important moment in a case like this when someone is supposedly finding out for the very first time that somebody that they cared about has been murdered. Giovante's dad, when he was told that Crystal was dead, he went into a state of shock. Crystal's on and off again boyfriend, Dino, he was devastated, completely broken up about it. And what's more, when it came to the two of them, both Dino and Kenneth had rock-solid alibis during the time of Crystal's murder. What about Derek Smyer? Well, the fact that he burst into laughter when he refused to answer the detective's questions about Crystal's pregnancy and whether or not he was the dad, or if she had told him that she believed he was the dad, that laughter says a lot. And as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to initial reactions, that was a huge red flag. But Smyer, too, had an alibi for the time of Crystal's murder. A neighbor saw him at his house at approximately 7.30 on the morning of the shooting. And that all but eliminated Smyer as having been the one to have shot Crystal. So the investigation kind of stalled out. I watched a documentary about this case and I came to realize that there are some things that we really don't think about when it comes to the aftermath of a crime like this. It's hard enough when we are tasked with taking care of the arrangements for our loved ones when they pass away. 
Sometimes things can be taken care of in advance, especially when it comes to our older relatives. Arrangements can be made ahead of time to make it easier on the family once the time does come. We can prepare for things like this. But when your loved one is murdered, when their life is taken so suddenly in an act of violence, so many other complications arise. Like, for instance, cleaning up the crime scene. It's left to the family or the owner of the property where the crime took place. Crystal sisters were asked about organ donation. Hers were still viable. Other lives could possibly be saved. And their minds are spinning as all of these questions are being dropped on them so unexpectedly. It's so, so hard to even try to go there. But when we're talking about organ viability, time is of the essence. And on top of all of this, Crystal's baby needed to be given a name. Fortunately, the sisters knew that Crystal planned on naming the baby Jeremiah. So that would be the name once his death certificate would be issued. Crystal's family then laid her to rest with her unborn son. And from there, the family completely focused on finding out who did this to their sister and why. Crystal's family racked their brains and their memories to try and think of anything and everything that they could possibly think of in the days leading up to Crystal's murder. Was there something that stood out? But there wasn't much, though. They had just spent two weeks in Texas visiting Momo and had only been back in town and back to work for two days when Crystal was killed. But Michelle... Crystal's sister, who lived in the same complex, did recall an encounter that she had the day before the murder that rattled her. Even at the time that it happened, before Crystal was killed, this encounter really had her shook. She'd come down the stairs with her kids, and as she rounded the corner to make her way through the lobby of their building, she saw a man sitting on the staircase. It was a man that she did not know. He did not live in their building, and she had never seen him before. So she questioned him. What are you doing here? And he answered that he was waiting for a friend. For whatever reason, whether it was instinct or intuition, this man's presence did not sit well with Michelle and she made the conscious effort to remind herself to make a mental note of what this man looked like. And just in case there was something to be worried about, she gave Crystal a call to tell her about the man that she had seen loitering in the lobby and told her to be careful when she came down the stairs. Could this have been the same man that came back the next day and shot Crystal to death? Detective Williams was going to try and find out. The detective knew that he had at least one good witness that got a look at the fleeing man's face. That 11-year-old who had been standing out in front of the apartment when she heard the gunshot and saw him running away carrying a shiny object. Her name was Shavana Hall, and she was asked to come down to the police station to work with the forensic artist 
so they could try and put together a rendering of what this man looked like. Michelle Taylor did the same thing and worked with the same artists. And the composites that the two of them came up with independently of each other were almost identical. Which is great, but the drawing did not look like any of the men that Crystal was involved with, Dino, Kenneth, or Derek. None of them resembled this drawing. So Detective Williams was going to have to keep looking. But Crystal's sisters, they were not going to sit idly by and wait for the detective to try and weed out another suspect. Michelle had a first-hand look at this man, and his face was seared into her memory. She wanted to find him, so she too hit the streets along with Monica by her side. Together, they scoured the neighborhoods. They scanned every single face of every young black man that they encountered, to see if he was the one. Not the safest thing in the world to be doing. They're obviously looking for someone quite dangerous, but at the same time, they were so driven to get this guy because Michelle had seen him. She saw him, and the more she thought about it, the more she felt like it was no coincidence that Crystal was killed the very next day after she had that encounter with this man in the lobby. There just had to be a connection. She had to look for him herself. And the sisters sleuthing actually came up with a name. Well, at least a street name. C. Styles. They had been showing this guy's picture around and someone identified him as a local gang member who went by that name on the streets. C. Styles. Of course, once they had his name, they thought about trying to track him down, but then they kind of sort of came to their senses and they were like, what do we do if we do find him? So instead, they turned this information over to Detective Williams. And fortunately for the family, the detective was working as diligently as he could on the case. So he took their information very seriously and he ran it through his computer database of known gang members. And he quickly realized that there wasn't just one guy that went by the street name of C. Styles. There were several of them. But he was able to narrow it down to one guy who was in the area and he was out on parole at the time that Crystal was killed. His real name was Skylar Jefferson Moore. Okay, so who is Skylar Moore and how is he connected to Crystal Taylor? This would not be the easiest question in the world to answer, as there was no obvious connection right away. There was no information that anyone had to show that Crystal ever knew or met Skylar Moore. So Detective Williams needed to widen his scope. And through his investigation, he found out that Moore was a regular at Anderson Park. Like he hangs out there all the time. And that is the park near where Crystal had worked. And it was the park that she sometimes spent her lunch breaks. And it was in fact the park where she became acquainted with Derek Smyer. Detective Williams brought Skylar Moore in for questioning. He was shown a picture of Crystal. 
Moore looked at it, and Detective Williams looked at him. And Moore said, I don't know her, and I don't know who did this. But oddly enough, he kept chatting with Detective Williams about the case. And it was so bizarre. But the detective just sat there and listened as Moore provided him with his own personal criminal profile of the person that he thought may have committed this crime. Weird, right? See Styles here. Skylar Moore's professional opinion is that the person who perpetrated this killing was a person who was filled with a great deal of rage. Okay, mind hunter, if you say so. But they are listening intently to what Skylar Moore has to say. Beyond that, Detective Williams is really trying hard to put this together in his head. What is this gang member about? And he's this guy with this extensive criminal background and a reputation in this neighborhood. What would cause his world and Crystal's world to collide? If he was in fact the man that was there early that morning to shoot and kill Crystal as she left her home dead for work that morning. What is it about their lives or their lifestyle that brought them together that day? Would he have normally been the type of person that would have been up at the crack of dawn, out and about, ready for the day at that time? No, not really. He's a night person, as most street gang activity tends to happen under the veil of darkness. So that was the big issue hanging over Skylar Moore and his potential involvement here in this case. And then if you already weren't thinking that C. Styles here was an odd bird, hypothesizing with detectives about Crystal's murder as his eyes remained fixated on her picture, he suddenly went into a completely different direction. Skylar Moore decided that he needed to confess something. Not to Crystal's murder, but rather this other murder. Yeah, there's this other thing that he did. This other day, yeah, I want to confess to this thing. He told the detectives that he had killed a rival gang member. Of course, the immediate reaction is a surprise. Detective Williams hadn't even had this other murder on his radar. Even when he looked over Moore's record and brought him in for questioning. And all of a sudden, Moore decides to blurt out that he killed this other person. Okay. Well, you're probably thinking the same thing that the detective and everyone else is thinking. He's throwing this other murder out there to see if it will stick. Because the fact is, when this is the life that you live, the life of a gang member, there are certain things that you do and there are certain things that you don't do. Everybody's got their code of ethics, right? I don't know what all of that entails for street gangs. Things like you don't harm children, you don't sell drugs to children, you don't sell drugs to pregnant women, you don't snitch, you don't harm innocent bystanders, you don't harm the elderly, etc., etc. So, Skylar Moore here is confessing to killing a rival, a thing that in his world is totally acceptable to go to jail for 
and he can live out his life there as a respected person. But killing a pregnant woman, that is a very dishonorable thing to have done. And so the thought is that at this point, Skylar Moore is tossing out this confession to steer himself away from Crystal's case. Because no matter what he had to say in that interview room, it was never far from Detective Williams's mind that Skylar Moore was absolutely fixated on that picture of Crystal Taylor that sat on the table in front of him. Her picture meant something to Moore. But for now, Williams was going to have to put him away for this other killing that he's admitted to. And once all of the people who were in the area when Crystal was murdered, that witnessed a man running away from the scene, when they were brought in to take a look at the lineup that included Skylar Moore, every single one of them, including the 11-year-old, including Michelle, who saw him sitting on those steps the day before Crystal was gunned down. All of them picked Skylar Moore out in the lineup. Two months after Crystal was killed, Skylar Moore was charged with her murder and the murder of her unborn son. And then the fear set in. The anxiety of knowing that they were all going to have to go to court and face the person that they believe killed Crystal Taylor. The fear stems from more being connected to gangs. And this is a young man who had not a problem with walking up to an unarmed pregnant woman from behind and shooting her to death. If he was willing to do that, what else was he willing to do? Everyone feared facing this man in court. But when Crystal's sister's finally did, a strange feeling came over at least one of them. Looking at him for the first time face-to-face in court at a preliminary hearing, they actually thought that Skylar Moore looked like he was carrying around a heavy burden. That this killing, if it was him that did it, that it was something that he deeply regretted. The detective brushed aside the sister's feelings like, no, 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 no. This guy is a gangbanger. He's a murderer. He's cold. He's heartless. Just cut that out right now. But the fear overwhelmed too many witnesses. Yes, Michelle had been the one to see Skylar Moore sitting on the steps the day before the murder and was absolutely willing to stand up in open court despite her fears of testifying against a known gang member because she needed to do what she needed to do in order to get justice for her sister. But the other witnesses, the ones who had seen more loitering in the area prior to the murder, the ones who had seen him fleeing from the scene after they heard that gunshot, all of them were unwilling to testify against the known gang member. All of them were too afraid for their own lives and the lives of their families And it is a perfectly reasonable fear, of course. All of them were afraid except for 11-year-old Shavana Hall. She was willing to take the stand and testify as to what she saw, though her family was worried. Shavana herself likely did not understand the implications of what it meant to testify against a gang member on trial for murder. 
But what all of this was going to boil down to was what the district attorney was left here with. He had the victim's sister who saw more the day before the murder, and he had an 11-year-old who saw him running away from the scene. And that is all he had in the way of evidence. All the other witnesses backed out. There was not a single shred of physical evidence linking Moore to Crystal's murder. There was no DNA, there was no fingerprints, no blood, no fibers, and no murder weapon. The DA felt as though he had no choice but to drop the charges against Skylar Moore, at least for now, until they were able to build a more solid case against him. It was a huge disappointment for Crystal's sisters. But they did have the thought that this was only going to be a minor setback. They'd be back in court in a few weeks, maybe a month or so, possibly a little longer. But that would not be the case. Okay, dreamers, I was going to try to make all of this one episode, but it looks like it's going to be quite lengthy. So I'm going to go ahead and break it up into two parts, but they're going to be released like the others in very close succession to one another. So hang tight. The second part and the conclusion of the story will be available very soon. As always, thank you so much for listening. I hope you all have a very wonderful holiday and until next time, sweet dreams.